0: Colossal military disaster. Welcome to Now Playing, the movie review podcast.
1: What are you doing? I don't know where we're going.
0: Into war, George. Hosted by Arnie, Jacob, and Stuart. There's no hiding from this, son. We have a job to do. Today, we are reviewing Christopher Nolan's Dunkirk. We know they will die. <laughs> This podcast is spoiler-filled and may contain harsh language. Listener discretion is advised. It's coming back round. It's coming back round!
2: Today we're discussing Dunkirk, starring Fionn Whitehead, Tomlin Carney, Jack Lowden, Harry Styles, with Kenneth Branagh killian murphy mark rylance and tom hardy no love for michael Kane? he's in this i know i i'm <laughs> proud of myself i caught the voice maybe it's because i was in that mindset because it's directed by christopher nolan this is arnie co-host
3: of now playing and Stuart? Miss Jacob, welcome to the podcast. Come on down, have a cup of tea.
2: Yeah, I use that line in the credits. <laughs>
3: <laughs> There's only like three lines in this film. Mm,
1: indeed. Thank you for your patience, audience. I know that everyone has been wanting to hear this podcast. Last week. And uh, we gave you Train Spotting Two instead. We we tried to make it an anglophile movie.
3: Yeah, we went from Scotland to England.
2: <laughs> hey, no love for life? What's up with that? Not a lot of feedback <laughs> on Train Spotting Two, guys. I was hoping for a little more, but yes, I'll take the full blame. San Diego Comic Con was last weekend, so I was not able to do a weekend of release recording for this one, and. I almost saw this movie at San Diego Comic-Con. A bunch of my friends got together. There was a 70 millimeter showing like half a block from my hotel at San Diego. I chose to go out with my friends that I only get to see at San Diego and drink instead. But I almost thought about Dunkirk that weekend. Now, this is a rarity.
1: I gotta say that summer movies, summer fair, it is reserved for the Comic-Con crowd. It is about those kind of event movies. It's kind of shocking we're getting this kind of movie now. And you could feel that, right? Even when they were doing previews for this movie... You'd have these rude R-rated comedies, you'd have superheroes blowing shit up, you'd have animated critters singing and dancing around, and then this would come on and you'd be like, oh my god, this is like a real movie.
3: Yeah, I remember Suicide Squad, I think that's where this trailer premiered, it was really just a teaser trailer, just a bunch of military guys really worried about something in the sky, and being with Americans in America seeing this trailer, like, it says Dunkirk, and Everyone's like, huh? What's that? I'm going
2: to be perfectly honest, Stuart. You're like, this is like a real movie. There is virtually no movie this summer I would rather have seen less than Dunkirk. What? I'm dead serious. The only thing that would attract me to this project is the directors whose name on it. I have enjoyed much of Nolan's work, certainly not all of Nolan's work, but A, a period piece. Not a big fan. B, a war film not a big fan see these trailers told me nothing i actually would rather be reviewing hacksaw ridge before seeing this movie you could open a history book though i could open a history book guess what a trailer should sell me i want to see this movie and they tried god damn did they try every thing is like you need to see this in a theater you need to get off your butt and go to a theater this is 70 millimeter in a theater they don't want you to rent this at home they don't want you to itunes or netflix this they want your ticket money and despite all that these trailers left me completely cold, and so I paid more attention to it than I would have because Stuart put Dunkirk on the calendar. I'm like, ah, shit, we have to review that? Yeah, Inhumans were cool to review with
1: that awful <laughs> wig that's
3: worse with the CGI now, but Dunkirk, a Christopher Nolan film, were iffy on?
1: Yeah, come on. I get it. I And I, Arnie, I, I share some of your reservation in the sense that sometimes prestige movies can be not fun to to dissect, if if it's just oscar bake, But this is Christopher Nolan, and I think that that should count for something. It's his 10th film. We've covered everything that he's done up to this point. So yeah, we definitely were going to do this, but I would have wanted to see this movie whenever it came out. I thought it was very impressive. And yeah, I agree. Without spoiling any of my review, if you're going to see this at all, you definitely should see it on a big screen.
3: Yeah, I'll say war movies are tricky. It's easy to do like a melodramatic war movie, so I'm always iffy when those kind of films come out, but I was interested to see what would Nolan would do it. With the, what is the guy that does weird stuff with dreams and time? What is he going to bring to a war film? That was of interest to me, and I do know he loves film film. Not digital, but like actual film and doing huge IMAX shots, so I I thought there's a lot of potential here, even though, again, as a Yank, I'm not that familiar with the story of Dunkirk. Like, yeah, that's stuff that happened before the Americans got involved in World War II. Isn't that when the war really started, when we showed up? But, yes, I knew that something from, like, ninth grade history was there in the back of my mind.
1: I will go ahead and admit that I thought Dunkirk was a soldier. <laughs> I thought it was a guy that led the evacuation. And you're right. It is my American public education that, yes, it just gets soft soul. We know that World War II was building up for really all of the 30s and that, yes, several things were happening before America got involved.
3: You just don't study that part in public education here.
1: Yes, we like to tell ourselves that Yeah, you guys couldn't handle it, and America rolled in and solved your problems for you. And unfortunately, that is the stuff that gets sold here. I knew the Churchill speech. I knew something about a beach. I knew it was a turning point for the English. I prided myself at least on knowing that much But I really didn't know much more beyond that. My dad was a big World War II history buff. And I will say, my childhood books, the stuff I was exposed to, was just picture book after picture book of submarines and planes and trenches. Anything, you know, my dad played strategy games about blitzkriegs and what have you. He was very big on World War II. But when we were growing up, there were no World War II movies. It was all Vietnam movies. You know, that just told you America sucks. We did, had no business being there. It was the unfun war in which we were the villains and betrayed our own men. And so that was my introduction to war movies. And if I saw World War II at all in my childhood, it was because Spielberg made them goofy and, you know, an in, Indiana Jones movie or 1941.
2: Yeah, I was thinking 1941. I was going to bring that up. I'll admit I knew nothing about Dunkirk or the English stranded on a beach. You mentioned a beach to me for World War II, and I'm going to think Normandy, right? And I grew up hearing a lot of World War II stories from my godfather, who was a bomber pilot in World War II, and I got to hear all of his stories and all of his runs, but all of his stories begin when America got involved. And the stories I hear from... Our British friends usually involve, honestly, I grew up with a very close family friend who was British, and all of her World War II stories were how happy she was seeing the American planes flying over her home, knowing that they were going to bomb their enemies. Never the British planes. She was always happy to see the American planes. So, I have a very narrow view. I did a little bit of reading about Dunkirk before seeing the movie, but I felt like Nolan should really sell me on this story and tell me what's going on. I did more reading after seeing the film, just so I could look for historical accuracy and find out how that was doing. But I knew nothing, and again, that's part of the hard sell for me on this, is you're telling me this movie's called Dunkirk, I've never heard of Dunkirk. Christopher Nolan is very shy when it comes to publicity. I think it's easy for people to forget he's British. I forget he's British. No, I, I definitely
3: think of him as British. He did Batman, though. Only Americans can do Batman.
2: Yeah, seriously. and With British people. <laughs> <laughs> I just think that people can think of him as a blockbuster movie director and forget that this story may have a lot more importance to him than it does to people on this side of the pond. And I
1: think that's what's actually kind of cool and unique about this. I mean, God knows there's been a million World War II movies. I've only seen a handful. I mean, I'm not big on it, I think all of that stuff came back with Spielberg in the 90s with Schindler's List, Private Ryan, and that Band of Brothers TV show. That was when World War II really did come into its own and then everyone was making those. That was when Christopher Nolan decided he wanted to make a Dunkirk movie that he and his wife actually got in a boat and recreated the voyage and said it was one of the most harrowing things they've ever done and nearly died. But they thought that it was, you know, obviously paled to what... The civilians had to do during a wartime evacuation and always wanted to do it but knew it was going to cost a lot of money and it was going to be really hard to get 150 million dollars and not put an American in it. I mean America is still a big movie going audience and to say that you don't belong here and there's nothing for you I think is an up pill battle for the marketing
3: department and i was shocked that this was number one precisely because of that i'm like how much is this going to resonate with an american audience but it was number one the week it came out and not just number one because your position doesn't matter what you actually take in compared
2: to your opposition matters. The fact that it made 50 million American dollars. I looked at this movie and how much it cost over a hundred million plus marketing. And I'm like, that could be a money losing proposition. No globally. It's already made it back the hundred million. So I was surprised that it is as successful as it was. I thought this might be Nolan using his clout to make a pet project that might not be financially viable. I guess that, all of us nerds were at Comic-Con because Wonder Woman <laughs> and Guardians of the Galaxy and all of the summer movies Stuart derided did
3: earlier. Yeah, no one saw Valerian because you're at Comic-Con. <laughs>
2: yeah.
1: <laughs> <laughs> But again, I'm not knocking it, but it does feel like after a while you're watching the same previews for the same movies. There's a monotony to it. So when something comes out that's totally left field, that can be its own draw. Hey, let's go see something that's not like anything else out here. Other than Wonder Woman, I don't think that we've even gone back to a historical war
3: this summer. I mean, we don't get a whole lot of World War One. That was a really interesting thing in Wonder Woman that that's the war they went to. But I find after this whole sp- Spielberg ising of world war two movies like yeah they, they could feel very much the same rah rah america i do like seeing different perspectives you know because these were world wars they went all over the place in our underrated book i did a world war II movie about the chinese and japanese uh, and that's interesting that you just don't hear about that especially here in america so yeah seeing something from this british perspective not including the americans at all before we even got over there that was part of the intrigue for me because i just want to see something different in all cinema but yeah when it comes to world war two films too
1: i'm just gonna go ahead and say it i blame tom brokaw honestly he was the one (laughs) yeah the greatest generation he made it personal he shat on generation x and said no the greatest generation was the ones that fought world war II. and i'm sorry generation x has always taken knocks from baby boomers and everyone before about how we haven't lived interesting lives like they have and we haven't done anything and it just doesn't bring people to the table i'll admit it's gotta be the defining event of the 20th century. The most important thing that happened in the last century was World War II. It's huge. It deserves to take its place as a discussion point and have a million movies about it. But again, because it was framed that way in the 90s, I always like, oh, fuck you. And I just, I don't want to hear about how great you were and how we suck and nothing we do is relevant. But I did go back specifically to watch Dunkirk, the original 1958 movie. The English did make it. Ealing Studios did do kind of a traditional telling of the tale, one that is more narrative-driven than what Nolan has in mind here. But it starts out with, basically, you follow a troop as they're chased across Belgium, back to the beach, cutting back and forth to England where people are very naive, don't know what's going on, loved ones, concerned for the people, not knowing it's that it's a real war, and then eventually getting into their boats and coming to save their friends for a big dramatic I won't call it Hollywood it's definitely an English
2: movie but it has a real feel good uplift that a lot of old fashioned movies do yeah I'm actually down with Brokaw calling it the greatest generation I mean they really outside of World War II Overcame a Great Depression and all that. And for you saying, John X got shit on, I'm sure our millennial listeners are like, well, fuck you. We have it even harder. Yeah. But- <laughs> yeah. I mean, everyone's got their
1: beef, but I just think it's not a good conversation starter. Whenever you tell someone your experience is invalid, that is not going to get them to listen to you.
2: No, but Brokaw helped me to respect my elders and listen to some of those stories that I might not have been so interested in before he did his thing. I actually was way into the Brokaw reporting at that time. For me, it
1: has been... Making myself go back and watch movies set in World War II to try and get perspective, as well as learning the history, which, again, is incredibly fascinating once you want to dig back there and realize everything. I mean, it had to be a really scary time not even having social media to rely on and the apparatus that we use to, to help each other. Yeah, you could really get into a very dark place thinking it was the end of the world. But I don't think that this is their Dunkirk. I actually think what's interesting about Nolan and what he's trying to do here is that he's not trying to make something nostalgic or Hollywood or anything that we've seen before. I think he has a very unique take on the war film and starting with the way he filmed it. I mean, not using CGI, using the big noisy IMAX cameras. How did you guys see it? Well, first of all, there were CGI effects. Yeah, I mean, a few, but yeah, by and large, the people you see on the beach were human beings standing on a beach. Those are real spitfires
2: in the air. I was at Comic-Con. I saw this Tuesday afternoon in a matinee. I had the greatest experience of my life. I was the youngest person in the theater. It was an (laughs) IMAX screening, and I think it was me, and I kid you not, a VFW, like, field trip. Everybody in there was like with their walkers getting down the stairs and some of them were talking on the way out about how it made them remember that period of their life as they left.
3: I was like the only person who wasn't a retiree at that 430 show. I did see this just on a regular screen, I guess. Still pretty big screen. And yeah, I could see this looking amazing on an IMAX. It felt like like I've been to IMAX, those educational IMAX, like what they used to only be like at the Grand Canyon, seeing like airplanes flying around like this. I'm like, oh yeah, this really was made for that type of screening.
1: Yeah, it is. I saw it opening night, Thursday night, uh, when it premiered here in Spring. Springfield on the 2D IMAX digital projection, but I, Arnie, I'm glad you went to Comic-Con because it gave me the time to schedule driving to St. Louis and seeing it in the 70 millimeter projection. There is screenings where it's all digital, and then there are IMAX screenings where, yeah, they actually are going to spool up actual 70 millimeter film, which is a A rarity. I think the last time we had it was, what, Hateful Eight?
3: Hateful Eight. If they would have put in eight extra minutes, I would have done that. I could have, but the digital projection was closer.
2: I will say, yeah.
3: Maybe you can't see it in
2: 70mm, because there's only a handful of theaters in the country that do spool the 70mm film, as we found out with that Hateful Eight roadshow. But the IMAX presentation, the IMAX audio, the IMAX picture, this thing is spectacular, technically. It really... More than any film I've seen this year utilized the IMAX format. Sorry, Transformers. I know you were filmed with those loud cameras, too, but you didn't use it as well.
1: Yeah, about 75% of the film is using IMAX cameras. I think the only stuff that wasn't is the stuff on the Moonstone where they had to do handheld, and you just can't handheld those giant IMAX things and do dialogue.
3: What's funny is, more than this huge screening, I felt, way back when we saw Kingsman, I I had those gimmick seats that shook whenever there was an explosion. I felt like I was back in those because the sound on this thing was so loud. Like, the seats were actually shaking.
1: Yeah, this is not a silent movie by any means. The sound will hurt you. But it is a nonverbal movie. I think that's another thing that makes it really interesting is how little the dialogue seems to matter. It's very banal. It feels kind of like Kubrick's 2001 or Terrence Malick movies if they cut the voiceover out. I mean, it really is about taking in sensory sounds, but words don't play out. And was that the right choice? I I think when we get in the movie, we can discuss that. I also want to say, when I went to St. Louis, I didn't see it in IMAX exactly. I saw it in Omnimax. Do you guys know what that is? It's a very different experience because Omnimax projects on a dome. You're looking up at kind of like a cathedral. And so it causes incredible distortion. I would hate for my first viewing to be that, but I will say this. I have never had a more intimate experience with any visual image than that experience. I had seen Omnimax once before and it was like a nature documentary and that was cool for 40 minutes. I'd never seen a feature film in that way and I literally felt like I was on, you couldn't see. Sometimes you would have to look around you to try and see the entire frame. It was like you were being eaten by the movie.
2: Yeah, I saw a Neil deGrasse Tyson film that way at the Smithsonian in Washington, D.C. I've never seen a movie for fun that way.
1: It's overwhelming. I've got to say, I love that I did it, but I don't know that I'd do it again. Certainly not as a first viewing of anything.
2: Yeah, and as far as this being nonverbal, we'll get into it. But I also think the characters don't matter. I mean, I'm sitting here writing my notes. I'm like, the pilot, helmeted guy. Those ship captain. The sun. I mean, I just keep calling one guy our guy because he's the main soldier. And names are barely said, if said at all. It wasn't until I got home and looked on wiki that I could associate names with actions. And at times I got confused about who was who on screen. I did read somebody on Twitter It was both head-scratching, but then I saw the movie, and it kind of made a point. They were complaining about lack of diversity in the film. Not many roles for women, not many roles for minorities. I mean, it is about a specific historical event at a specific time. But damn, somebody other than a brunette male would have been nice on screen just to help me keep them separated. There was one black French soldier. I saw him.
3: Uh, Okay, I'm glad I'm not the only one. I felt a little racist saying all these English people look the same to me.
1: (laughs) Honestly, I mean, yeah, you can't rewrite. I mean, you could. People do it all the time. But I think Nolan, definitely, he's going to film at the actual location where this happened. He's going to insist on an all English cast. And you're right, Arnie. They are some illustrious names. Do they matter? I don't think it's a showcase for them. I'll go out on a limb and say, absolutely no one here is going to get an Oscar nomination for performance. It's not that kind of movie. They don't have the emotional varied characterizations to impress you. And they don't use any famous people, too. I thought it was really interesting. Hey, now, very Styles? Styles? No, no, no. Famous historical figures. No okay. one plays
2: Churchill. No one plays Hitler. No one plays an actual soldier that was at the event okay yeah Harry Styles I forgot while watching this movie but I had heard oh my god the 1D guy is in there and then I left and I'm like oh it must be this guy if it's Harry Styles no it wasn't even I thought it was Fionn Whitehead I don't know who any of these people are then I found out after the fact Tom Hardy's in this movie I'm like he must be the guy who kept his mask on the whole
3: goddamn film Yes, because that's what Tom Hardy does either a funny voice or a mask on his face the entire time
1: but yeah if you want to know what a director does this is that movie I mean I will make the prediction Nolan will be Nominated and probably win finally his Oscar for this film. This is a showcase for what a director can do and how they have total mastery over all the variables in play. From cast to crew to camera, he creates an overwhelming sense of claustrophobia here. I think that's what we're gonna talk about more than the characters, but
2: Arnie, go ahead and give them some kind of plot just so we can all be on the same page. In 1940, after the Germans invaded France, hundreds of thousands of French and English soldiers find themselves trapped in the coastal city of Dunkirk. The evacuation of over 300,000 troops from this area is told in this film through three points of view, taking place over different time frames. The longest time, a week, is devoted to the ground troops attempting to escape. There we follow Tommy, played by Fionn Whitehead, an English troop who repeatedly tries to get off the island, but is sent back off one boat, then another boat he's on is sunk by a torpedo. He and his fellow soldier Alex, played by Harry Styles, eventually climb on board a minesweeper, but it's sunk by a German bomber. Stranded in the water... Tommy, Alex, and several other troops are saved by our second story. This one encompasses one day and follows Mr. Dawson, played by Mark Relance. The Royal Navy has started to commandeer private boats to evacuate the troops, so Dawson decides to captain his ship himself. He's accompanied by his son Peter, played by Tom Glyn Carney, as well as his hired hand George, played by Barry Cogan. They set sail and come aboard a downed ship with one survivor, played by Killian Murphy. This soldier violently reacts to going back to Dunkirk, accidentally knocking George down the stairs. George dies, but Mr. Dawson and Peter never tell the soldier. They continue on to Dunkirk, where they rescue many other soldiers, including Tommy and Alex. But they almost didn't make it. They were attacked by a German airplane, featured in Story 3. This encompasses just one hour, and follows pilot Ferrier, played by Tom Hardy. His squad leader is shot down and killed, and then his wingmate also takes fire and lands in the ocean. But Ferrier continues to fight, shooting at German bombers and fighters. Ferrier runs out of fuel, but succeeds in chasing off the German planes. He safely lands on the beach at Dunkirk, where he's captured by the Germans. But the rest return home to London, where they're cheered as heroes, as credits roll.
3: Yeah, I think we really do have to talk about the structure of this film, because I feel like Nolan is not a very emotional filmmaker, but he's a very technical one. And I feel this one is all technical from the way the narrative is told to the sound design, just everything here.
1: Yeah. And non-chronology, it's a signature, right? We should anticipate it. They tell you up front and intertitles. Hey, this takes over a week. This takes over a day. This takes over an hour, but I didn't really figure that out until I see Killian Murphy talking to Tommy in the water midway through the movie.
3: Yeah, they don't tell you this takes place over a week. They say the mole, a week. The sea, one day. The air, one hour. I don't know what that means. I figured it out like halfway through finally when characters are jumping around. I didn't
2: catch Killian Murphy.
3: I figured it out later, but I am taking notes when they
2: put up those titles. What I thought was, yes, this is not going along in parallel. We're seeing different time frames, but I thought that this was how long after something had begun. You know, how long, not how long each one would encompass, but like this is one week after the evacuation is needed. This is 1 hour after the evacuation was needed. I thought we'd see the plane shot down in a loss that would lead them stranded there. So I just kind of flipped my expectation, but I knew we were seeing different time frames. I understand him doing this allows him to ratchet up the suspense in parallel so that all stories come to a climax at the same point. But isn't this needless dicking around? Does it add to the story to tell it this way? I mean, I think of what he did with Memento, and I thought that was so genius because it really enhanced the story itself. It was predicated on short-term memory, and being reversed like that was completely impressive. Here... This feels like not a gimmick, but something that unnecessarily complex.
3: Yeah, this is manufactured. And of course, all films are manufactured. They do things to make us cry or to make us laugh. I get that. I feel with Nolan, though, what he is doing in this is extremely manufactured to get an emotion out of us because I think he thinks of it like clockwork and if I tune all the gears right, I can make you feel something. Like they'll use in the score this thing called a shepherd's tone, which is an audio illusion where you think the note is just continually rising, that there's just no end to it and it gives you this feel that, oh, this is a very tense film. Any moment, something can happen because of the way this score is made and yeah, he's going to manipulate the time. I think so you get those breaks when you're supposed to have action and then drama and and rest. Like if you told this chronologically, I, I don't think it would have the same impact.
1: Yeah, if you told it chronologically, you'd have a movie where the main character doesn't appear in the climax. Tommy is everything on the beach, But once he gets going in his little Dutch boat, everything that we care about is happening in the air and with that other boat. So, yeah, I think in order to make all of the characters equally important, and likewise, Tom Hardy wouldn't show up to the last 10 minutes. I think you want to give all of these air, sea, and land
3: moments equal weight, Oh, I was so upset. Why didn't they just call the mole the land? I had to go look up what a mole was after this. You have sea and air, land, sea, air, or beach, or something, but they call it the mole.
1: I think that's a play on words. I actually think it's because one of the characters is a
3: spy. That's what I was suspecting the whole time. I'm like, mole, spy, okay, we can't trust one of these.
1: About non-chronology, I would say this much. I feel like it's become less and less important when you look at Nolan's work. It was everything in Following. It was everything in Memento. And then it started to be a technique to disorient. Like, insomnia, well, we felt like, yeah, he really needed to get some rest because... Sometimes the cuts would disorient or, you know, obviously something like Inception. Where are we? What dream? What's reality? And he didn't use it at all in the Batman movies. But when he did use it in Interstellar, it's barely there. I mean, honestly, and here, I don't think they had to do it this way. But I do feel like you get an emotional lift this way, and I think it helps create a three-act structure. I mean, all these characters are going to start off feeling like they're facing impossible odds at the same moment, and then they're all going to consider turning back more or less at the same moment, and then they're going to rally and be victorious more or less at the same time, when if you did it chronologically, those would be happening at very different points in the movie.
3: And that's why I feel like this play with time is necessary for this film. You keep saying characters. This film has no characters to me. I literally had no idea who, who I was seeing at different times. Like, Killian Murphy, is that him? Did I see him earlier? Like, they all look the same to me. I couldn't tell who they were. I kept comparing this to Mad Max Fury Road because that works as a silent film. This is more or less a silent film. But with that film, like, there's those five brides. I don't know their silly names that George Miller came up with, but I know there's a redhead and a blonde. There's visual things where even if the dialogue didn't matter, I knew who characters were. That was a big problem for me here is I didn't know who the characters were. I couldn't tell them apart. So thank goodness this was structured in a way that was interesting at least.
1: I think just because he's the first character we see, Tommy is the main character just by default. He's a fresh face. I don't think he'd ever worked in film before. He was cast as an unknown but we get Tommy here in the beginning walking around the city of Dunkirk leaflets are falling he really needs to take a shit like he he's trying to keep yeah. pulling down his pants to wipe himself with these leaflets and all of his friends get mowed down and he's the last man standing nearly gets killed by the French
2: yeah I figured he was our main character I figured that was Harry Styles I couldn't pick Harry Styles out of a lineup anyway now one historical note this was actually filmed in Dunkirk. Nolan went back to that city to film, which makes the city look like the rapture just occurred because the city's pristine, but nobody's in it. Historically, that city would have been just completely demolished. The buildings there were shelled. The city had been bombed. The city had been shelled. Everything was disaster, but it gives a really spooky ghost town kind of feel. When they're there and those leaflets are falling just silently.
1: Yeah, I, I, it's where the tempo kicks in. I, there's this thing on this soundtrack. It feels like it's scored by with a stopwatch, and you just your heart starts racing. Yeah, I've never seen a war movie
2: where one of the shootouts takes place in the backyard. But <laughs> Nolan actually recorded his watch. And sent it to Hans Zimmer and said, digitize this and put this exact sound in the score.
3: Yeah, Zimmer's score here feels very industrial to me. I don't know if it's because I'm actually hearing like plane parts whirling or if he incorporated that in the score. I haven't listened to just the score, but it does have an almost industrial feel to it with that clicking and just other noises he incorporates.
1: I actually thought it was Johnny Greenwood. I'm like, I didn't believe it was Hans Zimmer. Yes, my wife thought the same thing. <laughs> yeah, Johnny is in Radiohead, and, and he's done a lot of Paul Thomas.
3: All the Paul Thomas Anderson, yeah.
1: Yeah, he, he does a lot with sawing and scraping, and there's a lot of fiddles. And, and just, yeah, we can't tell the difference between what's sound effect and what's music sometimes. And it's, yeah, it sucks you into this movie. And yeah, he's the character that we want to see get away. And it feels like we're watching him for the first half of this movie. Tommy is getting into smaller and smaller spaces. You know, he starts off on this wide beach and he will keep heading into tighter and tighter confines. Because even though it looks like freedom on the beach, there are no boats, home may be 15 miles away, but they have no
2: way to get there. I'll say this, that the biggest shock for me in this entire movie... Is when before he gets to the beach when he's just walking down the streets and that first gunshot comes out of the back left speaker of IMAX I almost whipped my head around and this movie is loud as somebody who's protective of his hearing I kind of wish I'd taken some earplugs to this but that first gunshot scared me in that theater because there is silence there's no Hans Zimmer score at the beginning there's just the sounds of the paper when that shot rings out Damn. But when you talk about the Zimmer score, it's what I noticed most about the rest of the film was just how it's constantly keeping you on edge. It is a discordant theme that heightens tension throughout the entire film. Usually, you feel like you have to build tension and then release. That's what I've always heard from horror directors is you build your tension, but then you have to have a release and then you build the tension again. According to Hans Zimmer, you're going to build the tension. It's like the entire movie is tuning a guitar string where you're just pulling it tighter and tighter and tighter and you know at some point... It's
3: that shepherd's tone.
2: Yeah, at some point that guitar string is going to snap and you're just like 90 minutes
3: of... Bracing. What was telling to me, like, I went to this with my wife and anytime she's just down to see a movie, 45 minutes in, she's got to go to the bathroom, just like clockwork. And that happened here. She's like grabbing her purse to get up, but she stayed seated for like another 10 minutes because that tension is always there. And she's like, oh, something's going to happen as soon as I get up because you're just waiting the entire time.
1: And I think part of that is that it feels like danger can come from anywhere. An interesting choice that Christopher Nolan makes, and I can't think of any other movie to ever do this, is that we never see the enemy. We may see their plane. We know that they're there in the background, but they do not do a tight close-up on the German. In fact, they will not even use the word German. With the exception of Harry Styles, who used Jerry they're the enemy and they make a conscious choice of making them seem like their shots can come from anywhere.
3: This is a very apolitical film which struck me again I think of what Spielberg does with the World War II movie it's just rah rah we hate those Nazis look we should hate Nazis but to me this could have been about the Germans I wouldn't know I I think because the theme here is about survival it's not so much about us versus them about the Germans I mean we'll see some blurry Germans at the very end when Tom Hardy gets captured but that's about it.
2: I found it very interesting the dehumanization of the enemy this is all about their rescue the three-pronged rescue i honestly though found myself very confused about tommy because tommy he runs from those bullets and he finds like a a sandbag encampment and they start shooting at him he yells i'm english they're french he runs over to them they kind of kick him out he flees again You know, here's our main character, our protagonist, and he's the one running from all the action. He tries to shoot a couple times through a fence and the gun jams. He just throws it down and runs. But then I see him, like, try to get into a line of English soldiers and they kick him out. I got confused. Later on, we're going to find him... Partnering with Gibson, who is a Frenchman, pretending to be an Englishman. At the beginning, I thought Tommy also was a Frenchman pretending to be an Englishman because the English wouldn't let him stand in any of their lines, wouldn't let him stay on their boats.
1: No, I think that's a big theme here. When you take in the larger historical perspective, you have to realize that back home, the United Kingdom was not so united on how to deal with this conflict. And that a lot of people had differing opinions about appeasement or going to war or how heavy you fight and where do you draw the battle lines. And I think that what we see here in the beginning is that in war times like this, You don't have many friends. You're on your own. Yeah, he tries to get in line with grenadiers. Grenadiers aren't going to take him. Now, to us, they're all English. But to them, no. I'm with this tribe.
3: And I'm sure these costumes are very authentic. I just had a hard time telling what was going on at the beginning. There are just lines going out to the ocean. I'm just like, I guess they're just, they're British. They're very orderly. They're all going to wait in line for some reason.
1: Oh, well, a boat's coming, so they think.
3: Yeah, I get there's a line that goes out on that pier for the big one, but I guess they're waiting for, smaller ones or something, but I saw this as just very cynical We're gonna find out that the goal is they've got to get at least what thirty or forty thousand English soldiers back to the u k Winston Churchill wants them there to because they believe the Germans are coming to invade them so i I saw that I'm like man that's like only ten percent of what they even have there so I started off with a very cynical view like oh this is about the military leaders not caring about the grunts.
2: I do find, though, that this film is not exactly historically accurate in its anti-French portrayal. This is specifically about the English being rescued. There were the French there in Dunkirk as well. Historically, the French are widely considered the heroes of Dunkirk, because they were the ones fighting off the Germans. There was a major battle going on, like the sandbags that we see here, where the French were protecting that beach so that the English could flee. I think Tommy establishes the idea that this is a movie about
1: escape, about defeat, about how you deal with things closing in on you and claustrophobia and the arrogance. You know, one of the things they could have included, there are three timelines, but they could have included a fourth one. If they were interested in having dialogue, they could have done the month that was going on in England, where Neville Chamberlain had to step down and Churchill took power. I mean, I definitely feel like the power plays were all going on at this time. And you were watching a character who was very much had been on the sidelines saying, we need to be more upfront dealing with someone that was like, "Eh, as long as we got the English channel, maybe we can just give them France and live with it. I like that this movie is so nonverbal. So on one hand, this was the right choice. On the other hand, if you wanted a movie to tell the story of Dunkirk, and really have non neophytes to history filmgoers that didn't know the story, that would be a way to tell them a lot more information about what
3: was going on. This film's successful in that it got me to go to Wikipedia, and not just Wikipedia, but just in general, go read up on Dunkirk and what was going on with the British at this point in World War II. So it's successful there. I don't think that's what this film was trying to tell you. Yeah, this film is about an emotional response. Maybe I mean, I just don't feel like there's a whole lot of emotion because I don't connect with a lot of characters, but I do feel like, again, Nolan is trying to just put me in the moment there and with the sounds and, yeah, how nonverbal this is. Half the time people are speaking, I'm like, are they speaking in French or am I just not understanding them because it doesn't matter?
2: There's a lot of sound effects that drown outlines too. But we've said in many previous reviews, and including earlier here, Nolan is a cold film director, and I mentioned I'm not a war movie guy. I wouldn't be interested in a film that's going to tell me the entire history of the war very factually. I want something that moves me, but what moves me most is characters I can root for. I root for Tommy because we get some time with him here in the beginning, and honestly, he is the only character I do root for in this film. I think that the nonverbal, it really showcases... Nolan as a technical director, because I sat there marveling at the technical prowess achieved on this film with the score, with the glorious shots. I mean, seeing that beach with those hundreds of troops lined up and their supplies lined up on the IMAX screen was awe-inspiring, but yet... Honestly, nothing here made me care if these people got off the beach. Not to be cold, I understand they're representing real people, I don't want anyone to die. But if I'm watching a movie, why am I rooting for them? And yet, I think the Zimmer score made me tense about it, but I had no connection to any of these characters when I'm calling them the boy and the guy.
3: Yeah, the character that I guess... I had the most investment in is when we get to the sea with Mr. Dawson. And what kicks off the sea is that there is a big attack on the mole, which it makes it so battleships can't pull up to the mole anymore where they could load. They had to be able to get out there. The Germans bombed that big ship, so that cuts off any access to big battleships coming to get the soldiers.
1: Right, and they don't have enough small boats to go into the shallow water, so it's this real problem of them having to stand out on the longest piers that they have, and that's these moles. Now, you said earlier you didn't like the fact that they called it a mole. I think that's Christopher Nolan being clever with wordplay, because Tommy's a mole, and his friend that he meets on the beach is a mole, a double mole at that. They're both going to pretend to be medics to try and cut the line, but also, we know that Gibson, well, we assume that he is just bearing a friend here, but he's also wearing his shoes, and probably his clothes, and taking his identity, and that is an alliance that's formed. Tommy doesn't judge him for that. He says, good idea. Let me
2: take the flask and we'll figure a way to get out of here. Well, Tommy's been thirsty for a while. I so saw him trying to drink from a hose. He's just, he needs to wipe his ass and he needs to get a drink. I mean, some basic biological functions, but it was that alliance when he sees the French guy taking the shoes that confused me, especially when Tommy was kicked out of the previous line for being in the wrong troop that made me think he was French until he started speaking. And that's a long time, you know?
3: Yes, I I was right there with you. I'm like, is he French?
2: Is that why they're kicking him out of the line? Oh, see, to me,
1: it was like, finally, someone's going to help me. I've been said no to so many times, even though these people are all, quote unquote, on the same side. There's so many fractions. You can see it at the mole. The British are standing there telling French troops, this is not for you. Turn around. You're going to have to find your own way out of here.
3: The problem is, I have no idea what's really going on until Commander Bolton, Kenneth Branagh monologues and tells me, like, what's exactly? happening with this evacuation because again i'm not familiar with dunkirk so i don't know
1: and i wonder again if we're doing one week one day one hour maybe one month maybe you do show what's going on in the war room with the old men that are making the decisions it's very exciting i mean when you read that history knowing that england had switched leaders during that month and that this was where churchill took power and the war changed I think that that would add extra drama and, yeah, give you the kind of acting part that wins awards. This is when we get statistics. Brano is Navy and Colonel Winnett is Army and they're just going to kind of tell you things like, hey, slow up on the stretchers because one stretcher is worth seven standing men and we need all the fighting men that we can when we get back home. We get this overwhelming sense that only the healthiest are valued at this point. We need all of our ships for when the Nazis attack England.
3: And I will say, you know, we do see a, a attack early on in this. But this is PG-13, right? This is not like Saving Private Ryan or Hacksaw Ridge where there's bloody limbs everywhere. It, it is tame in that sense.
1: I, I suppose so. It feels so tense that I don't feel...
3: There's just not the guts, I guess, that you, you're used to seeing in more modern World War II films.
1: Right. Gore. Gore. Graphic. Uh, Yeah, I mean, we see some people, usually it's like just bodies kind of blown up. We see an incredible shot of Tommy lying in the sand, and bombs keep coming closer and closer to him. Hit just about everyone around him, but he's able to stand after that's over, and that's where he gets the idea of, let's grab this stretcher. We saw this in an IMAX tease. I remember this was one of the first things that I saw, was just this very specific scene of him cutting through the line. We have these great low angle POVs of the patient as he's winding through all these people going over that chasm on the single plank, getting to that ship in two minutes before it pulls out of dock.
2: Yeah, I saw that as well. I forget which movie it was. It had, like, literally three Dunkirk trailers at the beginning, including this one, and it's a good scene, and I thought it was pretty dickish of them to take, you know, they get cheered because they walk over a dock that's been blown up, they use a single plank to get across, they're being cheered, they get this guy on the boat. Now, it's gonna turn out to be their good fortune, because this boat's gonna get blown up, but... I thought it was a dick move that they got kicked right off.
1: I I thought that was funny. And I also noticed on my second viewing, that poor man went down with the boat. He died. Mm -hmm. That was the irony of it all, is that he was going to be the one to get saved. And no, when that boat is going down, everyone has to jump off. Everything else goes under with the ship. And unfortunately, all those people in stretchers go with it.
3: It's this attack with the ship singing that kicks off. The sea, where I guess you get a little bit of the politics. You find out what the Navy's taking, everyone's ships to sail across the channel because they need those smaller ships to bring the soldiers. I thought they had to bring them all the way back to England, but no, they just got to take them out far enough so they could climb aboard these battleships.
1: Right. Again, the problem is small boats. They don't have any way to get from the big boat. Big boat can't get too far into the dock. They end up trying to build piers like out of cars <laughs> later or whatever, but yeah, they can't get far out enough in the water for the boat to get to them. So it is really just about that fairing system. And so, yeah. Yes, it's requisitioned is the word that's used, but the Navy is going to take your boat and try to uh, use that as the fairing system. And I do like, again, everything is about tension. And then the tension at the beginning here is this man doesn't want to give up his boat. He's like, all right, we'll do this job. You can requisition the boat, but I'm the captain and I'm going to leave without you commandeering it.
2: And I wondered who this kid George was who's going along. I mean... I thought it was his other son for the
3: almost the whole film.
2: No, I could tell that wasn't the case because he said I'd be useful. He calls him Mr. Dawson, whereas the other kid calls him dad. So I knew there was George and I knew there was son. But I'm like, is George just stowing away? They didn't ask him to come along. He's like, I'll be useful, sir doesn't prove to be the case but he says he'll be useful and i'm thinking does this kid's parents know where he is
3: is he just like disappearing for days on this boat why does he jump on i I feel like this is where you have the backstory he has a brother who died in the war and feels like he needs to be something but i don't think that's nolan's concern here
1: oh i get it it's in the look the way he looks at that navy he's a bad kid He's a kid that gets in trouble and he mentions later I don't do well in school. You get the sense that he doesn't like authority figures and he gets on that boat because he doesn't want to have to explain what happened to the Navy. He doesn't like them and so yeah, he just wants to get off and who knows? You know, He's not thinking about it too hard. It's, it's worth pointing out, England really didn't know what was happening. When this Dunkirk thing first started happening, everyone was just told to pray. Oh, it's just a national day of prayer for all our soldiers abroad, whatever they're going on. They had no idea about the massacre that was going on. So a lot of people were very naive about what they were stepping into.
3: I don't know if... Mark Rylance, who plays Mr. Dawson, if he's like a seasoned actor. He's an Oscar winner. Oh, okay. I knew who he was, though, because of his voice. I'm like, I've heard that voice in, like, some cartoon or something. Found out he was in the Spielberg movie. He's the voice of the giant in BFG. My wife loves that book, reading it to her school kids, and our girls love that book, so like, that whole time, like, I'll, I'll recognize Michael Caine later, too, because of his voice, but this actor, I didn't know he won an Oscar, but I'm like, oh, I've, I've heard him in something at least. Yeah, he's Spielberg's guy. He's Bridge of Spies, Spielberg's movie about the cold war with tom hanks
1: he won the oscar for that took it away from stallone got a lot of people angry about that oh
3: okay i good on you then i, I didn't think stallone earned, earned it yeah frankly i thought he deserved
1: it i think he's a really good actor but he'll also be in ready player one spielberg loves him he just keeps using him again and again
3: and maybe because he is like a fatherly figure and he's caring for a son and and george like this is the one character like i actually had some concern about like and maybe because he's just a regular citizen trying to do the right thing and. Say- these soldiers. This seems like the the human story part to me.
1: Yeah, I love the way that he works with his son. I mean, I definitely feel like there's a a real respect there. He lets him do a lot of the hard work here, and he, he you know they know what they're up against, and he feels like this kid is ready. And you know they're trying to watch out for George, but they don't know what they're about to step into. They don't know what's coming for them is Killian Murphy.
2: Yeah, and historically some. Englishmen did take their own boats, by and large it was commandeered boats like we saw, the Navy pretty much did this themselves, but there were a few cases like this and I do think that this is the story that has the most dialogue. You've got three people who have no reason not to speak, right? They are on a boat. They're on a one-day cruise.
1: And that's why they can't use IMAX cameras, because those things are noisy. And you can't do heavy dialogue with those things without blimping those things. And they're in very tight spaces uh, with this enormous IMAX camera. So they had to go with a different kind of camera
2: ah, there's always adr but i don't know that i really needed george's whole backstory i mean eventually when he gets wounded you ask why he came along he's like i told my parents i was going to do something important and uh that's a shortcut though That that's it is it feels cheap in a film where most characters have no motivation the one character who's trying to give a motivation is a piss poor one
1: And also going on, also feeling the pressure, are the RAF. They know that they really only have 40 minutes of flying time. They've got limited (laughs) fuel. And, yeah, they're heading into—you can sense it from Tom Hardy's character that they're just not sure that they're going to be equipped to deal with what they've got.
2: Now, this was the biggest bullshit note of all the historical accuracy, is planes that just have to cross a channel that a boat can do in one day and not have the fuel for it. Those planes—I did look it up—were capable of flying for many hours without running out of fuel. So unless they decided to take off without refueling and they, like, were— like my wife driving a car, the light's on, but we're still going to go into combat. That's not happening.
3: I don't mind that. It, it's there to give drama. What I found interesting reading up on the actual battle afterwards is that, yeah, you got to worry about planes dropping bombs. But that was not the big fear of those on the beach. It was the invading army on the ground who, for whatever reason, like no one knows why Hitler's like, ah, you guys, just just take a couple days off. Just stop your advance and rest up they could have just totally wiped out the English and the French, except Hitler's like, yeah, take five. So those planes were just there to intimidate them while the army rested up and refueled tanks. But I get why that, yeah, you do a limited fuel thing. It's there to, again, raise that tension. This film's all about tension.
2: Okay, but, I mean, to anyone who goes in there, like the audience I was with, many of whom may have been pilots, my godfather seeing this movie would have cried bullshit in the theater.
3: They would have also been upset that the German planes had those yellow nose cones, because that... I watched the thing. Someone complained about that. That didn't happen until a few months after Dunkirk. But you know what? It's useful. So I know who the Germans are and who the Spitfire English are. I'm glad Nolan made that choice because I, unlike all the actors here, I need something that differentiates things.
1: And this is where it really, I mean, I think what's, what's cool, they're trying to conserve fuel. So they're like, we have to fly lower to the ground. But that makes them sitting targets. And this is really where in Omnimax, Like, I feel like the pilots, I'm looking all around me, my head, where where is it coming from? Because, like, you just feel like any cloud could just be harboring the next death from above. And so there is this strange sense of claustrophobia to flying in the sky, which should feel like the exact opposite, which should feel usually like freedom, feels like, oh, my God, at any second, someone could sneak up on me. And that rattle. God, those machine guns will just get you every time that the
2: sound designer lays them on here. The only trouble I had, I did appreciate the yellow nose thing. I got that that wasn't accurate, but yeah, I need to know who the good guys are and who the bad guys are. But I had a little trouble differentiating between when they were going after a bomber versus going after a fighter and when it was damaged enough to leave the fight and when it was still going to come back, although it was smoking. And when I knew they started off with three fighter pilots there, when the leader got taken out, it was in the midst of so much action that it took me a moment to catch what had happened. Is
1: that Michael Caine
2: going down?
3: No, no Michael Caine's like the operator on the in the homeland. Yeah, he's back safe. Michael Caine's not flying a fighter. Come on.
2: No, oh, well, I mean, I know
1: the actor wasn't, but I thought they might have tried to, you know, it's Nolan. He's always trying to make him
3: look good. He put him on the radio. He got him in here.
2: Yeah, I, I knew it had to be him just because this was a Nolan film. I might not have caught the voice otherwise, but my... Michael Caine's been in so many Nolan things. I'm like,
1: yeah, that's probably him. And that's one thing I noticed about the timing of the actual 70 millimeter film print and the digital projection is that I feel like when I saw it digitally, these colors were very saturated. It felt much like a brighter movie. When I saw the OmniMax screening, it felt much more gray. The timing of that actual print, it was uh, less inviting, less warm colors.
2: Yeah, it was pretty bright when I saw it on IMAX Digital. And the air fight sequences were the ones I cared least about, though. I really felt like, yes, there was tension. There was gunfighting going on. There were airplanes there. But these are people who barely take their masks off. I was referring to them as goggles and no goggles in my notes, not (laughs) knowing one of them was Tom Hardy. And the entire thing up there...
3: I don't feel like it's filmed in a exciting way. What? I knew you were going to say that because I was watching this and I'm like, wow, this would look great on the IMAX. But I, I realized how unconventional. It was not shot like a Star Wars dogfight. Yes. And I, so if that's what you want, yeah, you are not going to get that. I felt it was more true to how it would be in one of these fighters, though. Like Stuart said, very claustrophobic and the rattling of all the
1: parts. Yeah, again, I, my sense is... In all the areas, is that at any moment, death could just come for you from where you least expect it. And that's sort of what each character deals with. At the beginning, that's the threat. And then as we move into the middle, there's this moment where everyone has to realize, should I turn back? I feel like Tommy doesn't have much choice. He gets on the wrong boat. He's got to turn back. First of all, the first boat goes
2: down. That's where they befriend One Direction's Harry Styles, Alex in the film, I found out way after the fact. Was he the one then, I got confused, who was who again, a bunch of brunette white guys, when Tommy is not allowed on the boat, he looks down and somebody's like climbing on the docks on the outside of the boat. No, that's
1: Gibson. Yeah, Gibson always has the good idea. He really is the mole. He really knows how to hide and like play it just right he's the one that tells Tommy you don't have to go back just because they said we'll wait for the next boat we'll try to sneak on the next time what it is is that they see Alex jumping off they save him from being crushed the ship is going against the mole it could crush him I think it did kill a few guys judging from the screaming I heard but they save Alex and thus Alex is going to let them he's going to not rat them out when they jump in the water and pretend that they just got off of that ship that sank
2: right and that I Thought was pretty clever how they jump in get wet and come back out and then get on another boat yeah again about claustrophobia again
1: you think oh my god they're saving me this is great and then you realize man this is scary like we're gonna be like put into a tin can and barely can move and hope that we're not a moving a slow moving target
3: and what happened because again i have trouble following these characters what gibson stays on the outside because i think it's because he's French. Tommy is asked at one point, where's your friend? He's like, oh, he's he's just looking for a safe place in case something happens.
2: Yeah, but it's because he doesn't speak English.
3: I thought he was just being smart by staying outside. I wouldn't want to get down in the bottom of a ship either when there's U-boats and bombers above you.
2: Well,
1: here's the thing. Arnie's right. He doesn't do it because he doesn't... What his secret exposed, but we think he's doing it because Killian Murphy is having that same experience at the same time due to the non chronological edit because we're going back to the sea and they've rescued Killian Murphy and he refuses to go down below because he's shell shocked. That's spoken by Mark Relance. And so we assume that must also be why this French mole is not going in with the other Englishmen down below.
2: I never assumed that. I just assumed it was because he was French. I completely missed that connective
3: tissue there. No, it seemed like to be a recurring thing that they, as the film goes on, there's more and more hesitance to go down below on a ship. I mean, we see that when Mr. Dawson shows up to rescue a bunch of them. They have to force them, like, go down there, even on that little thing they didn't want to. And again, because
1: we get this scene at this moment in the middle of the movie, I totally get it. I think it's the absolute scariest moment in the movie. There's people in rowboats, I think, coming towards the ship, hoping that they'll take them and then something whizzes through the water faster it's a torpedo and you cut down to below and the whole one minute you're just biting into toast and drinking tea the next minute you
2: are completely submerged I still thought Tommy was French by the way because he wouldn't speak till he took a big mouthful of toast and then I'm like he's covering the French accent by pretending (laughs) his mouth is full of stuff you're confusing me he did I mean he has the first line of the movie he says I'm English I know but he said it so quickly I'm like was he lying then. Okay. This movie's fucking confusing. <laughs> I thought that was... I,
1: that's one area where I see no confusion. I'm English. I understand that, but he Gibson's pretending to be English. Well, Gibson never speaks. But sometimes I couldn't even tell which was who. All these white guys look alike to me. Anyway, I think that this is an incredible moment. And again, it
2: sets up an irony that they're going to show later. Incredible. Wow. I'm not feeling it's incredible. This is the highlight of the movie. Right here. I at this point, was pretty out of the characters. No characters to me have a moment. Ships have moments, planes have moments, machines have moments in this film, but no character has a moment to me. I was happy to see Killian Murphy because I'm a fan of his. I think he gives a very good performance and a very small role here. But the boat escape, I did like how Gibson does the nice thing of opening the door. He's not going to risk himself too much, but he is going to open the hatch door, which will allow Tommy to escape. But I didn't get invested in this i'm just like wow this is really good looking and sharp and again just very distant though from the action i never got so emotional as i just heard you sound so that's why i'm just a little i i wish i had that it's scary i, I can
1: we disagree it'll be scary to be in a, i don't need to relate to another character and how they're experiencing their day to know <laughs> it'll be terrifying to be eating in the next minute be drowning That's terrifying. I can put myself there because they've technically pulled it off. And this was the stuff they shot in L.A. Most things are done on location, but they knew this boat and tipping it and everything. They needed to have a water tank, so they shot it on a back lot in Universal
2: Studios. I could not tell that. And I just, I can't relate to eating a piece of toast and then being sinking. So,
3: yes, that would be terrifying, but... No, I get the claustrophobia, you know, hearing those sounds and not knowing what's coming, that water rushing, in. yeah, I do get all that. I will say, yeah, if there was characters that I was invested in, like, I would have been more pulled into the moment, but I get the terror of that moment, and I like how it defines Killian Murphy's character, whatever his name is. I don't know if we ever told it, but... Nope, Shivering Soldier is how he's built. (laughs) Okay, I do like... How we see the effects of that, what happened on that boat, the toll it takes on him throughout the rest of the film and the drama that that's going to bring on Mr. Dawson's boat.
1: Well, you know, it's not this attack. He actually, I think there's an irony here that, yes, okay, so just to repeat, Gibson did take the extra moment and it wasn't easy. He had to like climb over some stuff as the boat was sinking and spewing fire and what have you to open that portal and let Alex and Tommy out and then he gets on one of the escape boats, they're swimming behind, they got their life vest on, and that is where we meet Killian Murphy, and that is where I realize, oh yeah, non-chronology, this is actually happening way before all that other stuff we've seen at sea. But Killian Murphy is the voice of reason. He's calm-headed. He's actually the one ironically saying, don't lose your cool, just stay calm or someone will get hurt. And that will actually be the downfall later when he sinks in another boat and does what he does to George.
2: Yeah, I missed Killian Murphy on that first boat.
1: Yeah, he's a rescuer. He will drag them back to sea and then go back out there to help more people. And that is the boat, a boat we never see sink is where they find him on.
3: Oh, uh, that, that's very confusing. I was confused.
1: It is confusing. I agree. And I, again, that's why I say I don't feel like the non chronology is as essential as it, you work so hard to figure things out. And I don't feel like it's as essential in this movie. They could have done it another way. We didn't need to have this confusion in order to feel anything it's again i think a movie that likes to point out ironies and here the irony is in one moment he's saying be calm and the next moment he's completely freaking out when poor george just wants to give him tea send him down to get some rest and he does not want to go back to dunkirk and is willing to get physical and shove a poor kid into i don't
3: know what he hits but He goes
2: down the stairs.
3: Yeah, Peter does lock him in down there. I don't think he was told to do that. That was his choice.
2: I was trying to figure out if that was like an entire plan. Was Mr. Dawson and Peter in on it together? No, Peter goes solo and locks him in. And, of course, there's another way out very easy to the top hatch. And so Killian Murphy comes back the other way. And he's really trying to fight for the wheel with Mr. Dawson. George gets involved trying to pull him off and accidentally gets knocked down the stairs. And... It doesn't look like a huge flight of stairs, but accidents can happen. You can fall the wrong way. There's a lot of
3: blood. It looked like there was a pipe or something that he hit his head on down below. This was a real queasy moment for me. I just
1: I didn't expect George to die from this wound, but it is a moment to ask, do we go back? Do we go and get him proper medical attention? Is it worth saving the life of my classmate? for whoever we might not save at Dunkirk.
3: See, and because I was confused, I thought that was Mr. Dawson's son still. (laughs) I'm like, oh yeah, this is all you gotta do your duty. The Better, you know, one man perish than the whole, and I'm still gonna go out and save those soldiers. I didn't realize this was just like a friend of his son's at this
0: point.
2: That must have been even more confusing for you, as Mr. Dawson did have a son who died in the war. But yeah, so again, the turning back moment. And then up in the air, yeah,
1: there's been some victories. They've taken taken out some of the planes, but also farrier, Tom Hardy, has taken some hits and he thinks there's a fuel problem. He's hoping it's just the gauge, but he could have leaked all his fuel and any second go crashing into the water, and do you turn around or do you continue on with the mission?
2: Yeah, and he gets two of those moments. Later on, he is going to finally have to switch over to reserve fuel. He'll hear his engine sputter a couple of times. I don't know still to this day if his engine did get shot, if his fuel line was shot, or if he just, they mention if we fly higher, we use more fuel. So did he use fuel inefficiently? Did he stay out there too long? Did he get shot in the fuel gauge? In the end, it won't matter because as I mentioned in the plot summary, he does run out of fuel. But He gets two chances, I thought, to turn back. One when he has the damaged fuel gauge, and the other when he has to go to reserve fuel.
1: Yeah, and he's losing people, too. They've lost their leader, and then here he'll also lose Collins, and, you know, he thinks he's okay because he's waving at him. We'll find out later that it's actually quite a problem for his friend, but we get a peek at the climax, and... I think it's good the first time you're really disoriented. You're like, I see a ship sinking, but is it the Minesweeper? What is it? And I couldn't have predicted that this was Tommy's vessel coming out of there. I mean, we wouldn't have known because we have we have
2: no knowledge at this point about the Dutch vessel that's, you know, beached on Dunkirk. I didn't get that either. Everything I got was an aha moment the second time it came up. I didn't get it the first time through. What I didn't understand is when... Collins is going down. Why doesn't he eject? He like opens the hatch. He's ready to eject. They decides to close it and almost drown instead. He's able to open it
1: enough to wave his hand out. But I, I don't think he can actually open the whole hatch.
3: No, in the air, he did. Maybe it's just safer to try to land on the water than to parachute out. Who knows what happens? Then you're just floating there.
1: Oh, I see. Yeah, well, when he's in the air. I thought you meant once he hit the water. I mean, there were some technical problems at that point. I don't think he could open.
2: Yeah, but he never would have had that problem if he dejected and been in the parachute. And again, that's a fight on
1: the Moonstone where young Peter is like, Ah, uh, we see no shoot. The guy's probably dead. Let's keep going to Dunkirk. And Dad is like, No, I want to be sure. And I think that is because his own son did die in a plane.
3: And thank God Collins is a blonde. I know who this character is throughout the rest of the film. Because he's not a brunette like everyone else. Yes, I was him and Peter, the two blondes.
1: So you're able to cut back and forth. Again, it's all about creating symmetry and taking on water here. And then we'll also see on shore, there's a plan to get off that will be a little waterloggy that, yes, they've had to return. It wasn't a choice to do we go back. They have no choice. You're being dragged back to shore, Tommy, Alex and Gibson, and now what are you going to do? And I think it's only a matter of hours. It could be days. I'm not
2: sure how long uh, they're on that beach. That's one of the chronology things that frustrates me, is that That beach didn't need to be seven days. When you're talking about wanting the stories to be told in parallel, the boat could have been one day. This beach could have been one day. It feels like two days. but It it is two days
1: because they had the day to get on the boat and night fell, and then they were dragged back to shore, and then the next day to get
3: out. Yeah, but they tell us it's going to be a week.
1: Yeah, I know. I, I hear what you're saying. It's a week because the conflict itself, the evacuation was 10 days. So that's
2: the week.
3: And yet they make the evacuation look like it all happens at once.
1: Yeah,
2: I don't feel like we spend a week with Tommy.
1: Yeah, I agree. It's It feels like two days and not seven days. But anyway, Alex is going to hunt down another faction that seems to be mutinying. They're like, we're going to go off to the unsafe area where the enemy could come over the grass at any second and try to get on this boat.
3: Yeah, where they got to sit there for at least three hours for the tide to come in because it's washed up on shore. They need that tide to come in to raise the boat up so they could sail out on it.
1: And I did love that between and the and the colonel. The army guy is like... It's every three hours for the tide. He's like, no, good thing I'm Navy. It's six hours. (laughs) And you know that the tide's coming in because all the bodies are coming in. There's just some good images here. There's just some powerful visual storytelling going on. Nolan always delivers that. Even when I think he does get in trouble sometimes with his dialogue or his his intricacies with trying to be too clever by half, I think that he's always a strong image maker. And we get that many times here in this movie.
3: Yeah, those bodies coming in and the soldiers like kind of just pushing them away like, ooh, I don't want anything to do with that. That's a great image.
2: That was perhaps the most moving moment is the callousness with which they treat the body. So that's something I feel from the very beginning. When they get bombed on the beach and nobody's tending to the possible new wounded. There's enough old wounded that it's every man for himself repeatedly. I keep feeling that. When that first boat with all the wounded on them is sinking, nobody's trying to help the wounded. It became every man for himself at that point too. Despite the fact that they are lined up and they are orderly, there is really... It's being held together so tenuously. That's where I feel my tension is. When they're on this boat that's washed ashore, the tension for me is really inside that cabin that any of them at any moment could turn on each other to save themselves. So again, my second big jump of the movie is
3: when a German bullet comes through that hull. Yeah, and that Dutch vessel they're hiding in. Again, as an American, you're thinking uh, Saving Private Ryan, Band of Brothers, but these soldiers do not get along. Like There's a lot of infighting. And really, they just want to get out of there alive, and they're really willing to like turn on each other to make that happen.
2: Uh, Let's call out
1: what it is it's One Direction's fault, right? He's a jerk. (laughs) I don't even know which one that is, but okay. Alex. No, it's totally <laughs> Alex is the one that's like, you know what? I'm going to volunteer. We need a ballast. We need to lighten our load. And I'm going to blame you because I've been watching you and I've not been outing you before because it hasn't impacted me. And yes, you did save my life earlier, but that's over. You're going to save my life again because we're throwing you out of this boat and as it's taking on
3: water i guess the what it's germans i thought oh are the english just bored so they're using it as target practice but i think it's the germans who are finally starting to move in they're shooting at that boat and yeah when they're like go plug up the holes i'm like no that's an awful idea <laughs> there's bullets still coming through
1: yeah i think that this is the one area where i get that nolan wanted to be cool and never show the enemy but it is confusing that we never cut outside this vessel and see who is shooting at it it would have helped to understand even if we We had only just seen rifles or something, just understand what was going on. But again, they want to keep this perspective of claustrophobia and the paranoia of not knowing when the next bullet is coming or why it's coming at you. And that all of a sudden your brother could be saying, get out of this boat. And if you want to stand with the frog, we'll throw you out, too.
3: Yeah, I never thought Gibson was German. I definitely thought he was French, so... You did? You guys guessed it? Yeah. Yeah, well, Yeah. he never spoke, and oh. I, I just didn't think... I thought it would have been weird to all of a sudden have this, like, oh, there's a Nazi who's been infiltrating us, because, like, what does he get out of this? No, it's a French guy.
1: But nobody speaks. I'm surprised. I, I was totally shocked by this. You get it right here in this moment before he speaks. I mean, it's like, as soon as Alex calls it out, you go, oh, that's right, this guy, it's the mole, right? Okay, this is a guy who's not as he presents himself to be, but I had not guessed that prior to that. You never thought he wasn't
2: French. No, at times I thought they both were, so. Okay. Yeah. All right. Well, anyway, I was
1: surprised. I thought it was a good twist. And yeah, I think it's quite ironic that the Frenchman that pulled them out of the hull, that at least opened the hatch and allowed them to,
2: is going to drown in this way. Feet from the ladder that would have saved his life. Yeah. If I cared about the character, I'd have been really sad.
1: But come on. I mean, first of all, this is a nonverbal movie. We're not going to get to know the character. Second of all, you can relate to people surviving. I, I don't need to know anything about anybody to know that when they're in a dangerous situation, that's fearful. That's scary. I can be that person whoever they are if they're in physical jeopardy.
3: I get that if I'm watching a documentary, I again, it's interesting, I'm learning something, but I kept comparing this to Fury Road where that's a very non-furbable movie as well, but when that war boy, you know, sacrifices himself at the end, like that was moving. Like George Miller got me to care about those characters and this film, yeah, I find it interesting, I'm feeling for their predicament, but I'm not emotionally invested.
2: That's exactly where I at, is what you're discussing is a presumed empathy, which is bad writing. I mean, just to say he's human, so I should feel sad that he's dead is not good storytelling. And so I watch him die, and I did realize the irony that he saved them earlier, and now he's drowning, and... Drowning is one of my big fears, and the way it's shown, again, technically marvelous, the way he's, like, almost there. I swim a lot. I know what it's like when you just start to push yourself to the maximum for oxygen, and you get that panic moment. I realized it happening to him, and I was like, oh, he's dead, but I'm not
1: moved by it. We're all in agreement. There's no characters here. There's no characterization. I think that's by design of the movie. I'm not going to say it's bad that it did that. It's unique because it did that. And again, I don't need to know all, anything about anyone to know that when you're in a vessel that's taking on water like this, it's harrowing. It's upsetting. It's enough as an action movie to get under your skin in that way. I mean, I think that it's easy to be in this moment here. And I think the reason why he he drowns is because he didn't understand the language. That's the irony is that they were saying and ship and he was still standing there plugging the holes. He couldn't understand what they were saying because he had their back to them. It's, there's a Lots of ironies to all of how this is playing out towards the end here, including the fact that Farrier is
2: saving them by shooting down the bomber at the same time he's going
1: to light the oil that is filling
2: the water. That was a moment where I didn't quite understand the danger because Mr. Dawson is pulling the troops out and they're like, oh, they're covered in oil. My first thought is, are they going to all be blind? You know, oil in the eyes is a horrible thing.
3: No, I, I was worried about a fire breaking out.
2: I was worried about it, but... I've been on boats, and I didn't think they sparked that much, so I wondered what the danger was. I didn't realize... Yeah, shooting down aircraft in the area was going to be what would ignite it. I mean, I obviously know gasoline is flammable, but I just didn't see the danger. Now, you want to talk about somebody I feel really bad for. The guy boiled alive under the fire when that goes, and we see his skin blistering, and he's running out of air, and his only way to get air is to go up into the flames and die. That one is nightmare-inducing. Yeah, agreed. Do I drown or do I burn? I don't know. but Or just watching
1: the men, like, Tommy is the first to realize the boat I'm swimming to, it's sinking. I need to go in a different direction. I don't know where I'm going, but like people are literally climbing. It's like a hamster wheel. They're climbing up as they're falling in the water. So they're like staying in the same place, trying desperately to climb up the ship that's sinking. And editing has really made it seem like George is dead at the same time that we also lost Gibson. Again, this is where I think the non-chronological take on things helps bring things Closer, where it would be several minutes before Alex would get on the
2: moonstone and be like, hey, you know, you have a dead kid down here. And what I noticed is the cycling is really picking up. We spent more time at each place. I think we spent the most time at the mole, number one, the beach or with Tommy, wherever he was. Than we did on the boat or in the air. But as the movie goes on, we're now like 30 seconds, 30 seconds, 30 seconds. And by and large, he cycles one, 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 or one, two, three, one, two, three. And then it switches sometimes three, two, one. Every so often, he'll skip one, but he pretty much gives us equal time on each. And it just, at the end, it's boom, 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 boom. We're here, we're here, we're here, we're here. And that. In a film that has been tense the entire time and ratcheting it up, that is a way to take it to that next level.
1: We're not at Dunkirk. It's kind of weird, movies about Dunkirk. And really, the Moonstone never gets there. So Killian Murphy doesn't have to worry. No, No need to freak out. We're not going there. It all ends here. We're going to just rescue these people on the sinking minesweeper. And Collins, the rescued RAF, pilot is going to be the one to be like you know what just go right now because that plane is coming down into the water and wouldn't you know it the last hand he grabs is tommy tommy is dragged uh, at the last minute to
3: safety and when we get to dunkirk you know you get the great moment all the ships are coming up, i guess they're called the little boats of dunkirk i was reading they're all coming in and then you hear a plane coming in but that's tom hardy right like everyone's scared they think the germans have returned
1: well, Brano gives us a couple of facial reactions. He's happy that the ship's leaving and they're getting more and more people off. Then he's frightened because things are coming on the horizon. And then it turns out to be all the civilian boats. And he has a moment of recognition with all these neighborhood people. And then, yeah, no, he's worried again because there is another German plane coming. That, yes, Ferrier took out the last German, but there is a fourth plane And it's the one that's coming And He lowers his eyes and he thinks he's going to get it. He has seen Farrier earlier. He passed by very quickly with no propeller moving. And I think he just assumed, yeah, that guy's dead. But he didn't know that he could turn around and take this
3: enemy plane, the fourth plane, out. Okay, so there was a fourth plane, and Furrier took him out.
1: Yeah, the fourth plane is the one that tries to shoot at the Moonstone, and because of Pete, and he's able to pilot out of the way, he's got bigger fish to fry, so he's not going to circle back to get him. He's going to go for the mole, and because Tom Hardy is still able to maneuver and fire his gun, he's able to take the guy out and have... What's
2: a cool couple seconds of feeling like a hero before you realize, I'm dead. I thought he might be rescued. He lands on the beach. People are being rescued from the beach, but he lands on the bad area of the beach. He's going so fast. There's no way that... I mean, I guess
1: he could just kind of like tilt and go down straight in the water, but that seems like certain death. So no, he flies over the Dunkirk Beach into unknown enemy territory, and here's where they... Cheat for Dramatic License too. We know this is only one hour. We saw him look at his watch. It was, what, 2.30, 3 o'clock. At the most, 4 o'clock,
2: but the sun is going down somehow. And the fact that, again, he considers ejecting, chooses not to eject. I wish there had been a single line, or maybe there was, and I missed it under sound effects, about, hey, you know, our ejector seats fail 80% of the time. It's, like,
3: really... I think they just had to jump out. Like, I don't even think they had ejector seats.
2: Well, they said
1: parachutes. They
3: have a chute. Yeah. Yeah, no, they had parachutes, but I think they had to jump out of those planes.
1: Yeah, I, I think they're not the kind of parachutes we like to think about when we want to use
3: parachutes. And he, they're flying so low, mm-hmm. you, you got to give time for a parachute. So I, I guess it's safer to just try to land.
2: Yeah, I've seen Point Break. I know there's a And Kingsman, I know there's a minimum <laughs> of ceiling. Yeah, it's kind of spoiled by the trailer that he would run out of
1: fuel, but we knew it was going to happen anyway. It was... Sort of faded. It was his choice by staying on and taking on these planes. We knew that he would run out and be in this predicament. And we're just hoping, I mean, I was, biting my nails, please just let that landing gear come down
2: and let him at least be a prisoner of war for the next five years.
3: Yeah, he's going to be a prisoner of war. (laughs) All right.
2: And this was something educational, the way he has to, like, pump to get the landing gear out because no gas, no automatic landing gear, so it's, like, baffled. That was kind of an interesting historical detail.
3: And thank goodness he lands so he could take his mask off so we know it's Tom Hardy.
1: Yeah, I, I mean, I knew just, I think I just went in knowing it was Tom Hardy was in this, and so it wasn't hard for me to tell the two pilots apart. I knew it was Tom Hardy, and yeah, again, you're happy for him, but at the same time, you recognize, uh,
2: yes.
3: Yeah, he's burning that plane for a reason, because <laughs> he knows the Germans are coming.
2: I thought he was burning the plane as like a smoke signal of help me.
3: No, no, destroying, yeah, he doesn't want the Germans to figure out what kind of technology they have
2: and everyone
1: feels doomed here i mean it's worth pointing out first that peter has lost his friend and has to swallow a very painful truth that i really love the moment where you know killing murphy has kind of come to his senses and wants to be reassured hey i didn't freak out and do anything too bad right and peter just has to lie to him i mean and i love that exchange what a cool dad that you have mark verlance just kind of look at him like that's the correct choice son good job
3: Yeah, no, there was good moments like this. I I wish, maybe if there was more character development or characters in this, I, I would have felt more emotional tugs. But yeah, this was a powerful moment.
1: Well, I think what you're saying is that if they had made the movie like the 1958 version, that definitely had characters that you followed throughout the whole movie. You spent time with that troop and with the people back home. And when you came back, it was very personal in that way. And here, these are people that represent types. They're not anything specific to us. We don't know anything about them other than we want them to live. And survival is not fair. That was one of my favorite lines in here. And survival is enough. That That's what Alex and Tommy learn when they get back. And they think, kind of like Ferrier. they're screwed. They're going to be spat on in the streets. That people are going to be afraid and angry at them for losing this fight. They think they're walking back to incredible judgment from their hometown.
2: Yeah, I did like that moment of, I guess, redemption at the end, that they were being hailed as heroes, and Churchill's statement, as read by Tommy, it was a big loss, but the British people really came together, and there's a victory in saving our troops.
1: Yeah, I think that Churchill really set the tone. First of all, he was mad that it took so long for him to come into power, and it would never have been fought this way, and and you need to understand, evacuations aren't going to win the war here. I mean, he when they start out and they get the newspaper, it starts to sound out like, yeah, we're just about to be dressed down by the new prime minister. But I love the way it turns at the same time that the crowd celebrates the return of the soldiers. And it is, it's the right feeling for this. This is an incredible military loss, but it is also a rallying cry to stop pretending this is a fake war we can ignore and really do something about it.
3: And it did take me a little bit to get that at the end here. Because again, as an American, I'm thinking Vietnam films. I'm like, oh, this is very cynical. Here's this big rah-rah, we will fight them here and fight them there and fight them everywhere. You know, these are soldiers that that had just failed and they're just fodder and we're just bringing them back to the homeland so they can keep fighting. But yeah, it is a very different perspective, again, that I, I had to try to put myself in that place that yeah, we may have failed there, but we are going to fight back. We will rise up and we'll keep going.
2: And the fact that, spoiler alert, they win the war, you know? Yeah. <laughs> it
1: does help to know the total outcome of this. We've seen Return of the Jedi, even though this is uh,
2: The Empire Strikes Back. Or we've read a history book. So, Jacob Stewart, do you recommend Dunkirk? Jacob.
3: I read a few reviews of I'm going to go back to War of the Planet of the Apes, another war movie, where people who really liked it, they're like, oh, this is such an anti summer blockbuster. It's so brave in the way it doesn't have this big battle. No, Dunkirk is the brave anti summer blockbuster. I mean, first of all, Spider Man, two hours, 20 minutes, War for the Planet of the Apes, like two and a half hours almost. This is like barely over 100 minutes, and it's a war film. Like, I'm used to those being really padded. But for Nolan to, to come in with a war film, film, and it doesn't have a lot of character. It doesn't have a lot of those emotional moments that I'm used to, but he does something really technically great that I I did like here. I did feel that tension and get drawn into moments where Yeah, things were tense, even though I didn't really care if these characters lived or died, but I did understand the horror of it. So I think technically, Stuart, you're right. Yeah, definitely a a Best Director nomination because what he does here, it's all on him. I do think if you're going in expecting a Spielberg-type war film, there's going to be a curve for you. It's not that kind of movie, and maybe that's because the British have a different perspective of World War II. It was about survival. They had to keep things going until we decided to get involved and help them out. And, and the Russians got involved and, and took a more active role. Like they really held things down along with the French. And, and so I, there is a different perspective there. So I think it's helpful for an American audience going in with that knowledge because this is a different kind of war film than I think many of us are used to. But I wish I cared about the characters, but I think technically this is a great film. It's a solid recommend. Stuart.
1: Yeah, I definitely was moved by the power of visual storytelling. I see this in looking at this series as a real rebounder for Nolan, a reclaiming of being one of our great directors right now. I thought he had kind of faltered after the last two movies, really. Dark Knight Rising and Interstellar, those were movies that tripped up on saying too much and not doing enough. And here, you don't need to say anything. You don't need to understand a single word of dialogue to be moved by what you see here. It's harrowing and atypical of a lot of war movies, I think, because it's not a conflict that Americans know much about, doesn't feature the Americans at all, and it's about failure and how to learn from failure. You know, usually in a war movie, you like to celebrate valor, victory on the battlefield. It's strange to salute and acknowledge failure as a learning curve for winning the war. But I think Nolan pulls that off. I think that he conveys all the meanings that we've come historically to put on this evacuation and get it into a very fleet, moving, beautiful looking 100 minutes. The one question I had after I saw it the first time was I was like, yes, this is a really powerful film, but did it need to be made now?
3: What, having an apolitical, nonpartisan war film? Uh, I think that's pretty powerful, because that's the opposite of what's going on here.
1: I actually think, you know, if this movie had come out a year ago, would Brexit have happened? I mean, this movie is about unity in the UK. And I, you know, obviously they were making it long before the Brexit vote happened and nobody expected it to go that way. But honestly, I do think that, I don't know, if you're a person that believes that we're living in dark times, there is just something comforting about seeing people coming together and believing that they can will themselves to victory. I mean, I think that is enough. So honestly, I think that, yeah, a lot of people are just going to, to respond to the movie in that way. But in ranking Nolan, would I call this my favorite? I think still his best movies are where he uses non-chronology the best. Dark Knight, Memento, Inception. But I'll put this in the second tier. I'll put this Batman Begins, Dunkirk, Prestige, then the mediocre ones, Insomnia, Following, and then, yeah, Interstellar, Dark
3: Knight Rises,
2: probably Red Arrows, honestly.
3: Yeah, and I'm, I'm there with you. This is in the middle for me. Yeah, he has his best films. It's around Batman Begins for me.
2: And I was really torn on this leaving the theater because I walked out like, this is the best looking film I've seen all year. This is the best audio film I've seen all year. While I wouldn't want to buy the score, it's one of the best uses of music in film I've seen all year. But yet, I walked out of there... Confused as to who the characters were, confused about some of the timing, feeling like the non-chronology going on was gimmicky and it hurt the film more than it helped it. There are other ways that if you wanted the three stories to climax together, you could have done that instead of fudging with time in this way. And I come in, I stated my bias up front. I'm not a fan of war movies in general or period pieces. And so I left the theater thinking, this film was not for me. But then I go to Letterboxd, where I rank all the movies, and when I tried to give it a star rating, I'm like, well, I'd say this is a three and a half or four star film for its technical. I think I ended up at three, because I really harshly considered its lack of character. And the fact that it was strictly an audiovisual experience. That had a story, but it really failed to connect me with any of the people. And outside of Tommy, the boat and the air stories I didn't feel were nearly as moving. Tommy is what carried me through. And I'm like, my rule is two and a half stars is the border. Three stars and up is a recommend. Two stars and down isn't. Two and a half, I have to really soul search. And when I gave this three, three and a half stars, I'm like, okay, it's a recommend for its technical prowess and for what it is on showing Nolan on display. I do say, see this in IMAX or don't see it at all. Legitimately. There's no reason to ever watch this on your phone. Seriously, this is an audiovisual experience that needs to be loud and proud. If you're gonna watch this on a small television or on a computer screen or something, don't bother, because there's not a story here. There's better war movies. I love Saving Private Ryan. I love Schindler's List. Watch those on a small screen. You're still gonna get a personal story. Apocalypse Now, Full Metal Jacket. There's a lot of better war movies out there for character. I know Coppola did some great things with camera work back there. I'd have to revisit the remastered edition of it to see if it's better than Dunkirk or not. But technically, A+. It's a weaker recommend, but that puts it in the middling Nolans. I have not recommended all of his stuff. I'd put it right about there with Interstellar. Really? Yeah. All right,
1: so can you rank them? Dark Knight, Memento, Inception at the top?
2: Yes. Okay, and then
3: Varying Degrees. And Prestige. I I think you're with me on Prestige, Stuart. I I think that's one of his best.
1: I would say Batman Begins, Dunkirk Prestige is the second tier. Insomnia Following are just kind of like, yeah, they were fine. I don't want to talk about the other two or
2: watch them. See, his first film, I didn't really remember liking, but I'd have to revisit it, and I honestly never will. Yeah, exactly. It's Uh, fine. Memento I Love... Dark Knight, I love.
3: Here's the thing. I would watch Dark Knight Rises again because I like Batman, but I recognize Dunkirk's a better film than that, despite my Batman bias.
2: See, Dark Knight Rises was also a weak recommend for me. I had to see that movie twice to really decide on a recommend. So I'd say, yeah, I'd put it in there with Interstellar and this film. Interstellar was not a good movie.
1: Murph. You were making fun of it, like, last week, and now you're like, yeah, it's No, okay. no,
2: I still make fun of that ending terribly. <laughs> Matt Damon's part was the best part of Interstellar. We can go back to that review. Yeah, but it was not a good movie. But, I mean... Nolan and I have a hard history. I've gotten no more hate mail than for not recommending Batman Begins, a review I stand by. So I'm saying it's better than Batman Begins. (laughs) I think you only like three movies is what I'm sensing here, really, when it comes down to
1: it. There's the three, Dark Knight, Memento, Inception, and then everything else is varying degrees of disappointment.
2: I stand by my reviews. Yeah, okay. And there were some other green arrows in there.
1: Yeah, I mean I think we all gave Green Arrow's to insomnia but who would watch that again?
3: Yeah, no exactly. I I've, I've given Green Arrows to all of these but there's definitely ones I would rewatch over other. Like I rewatched Interstellar and it was not as great as I came away with the first time where I kind of like was fascinated by it. The second time I was kind of bored by it but I'd still recommend it. I think that's
2: a similar experience that will be had with Dunkirk when watching it on the small screen and not completely encompassed by the projection and the situation, I think you'll find a lot less to enjoy because what is there is up on the screen. And I think the more engrossed you are with it, the better it will be. It just will not live up to home viewing.
1: Yeah, but that shouldn't necessarily be the judge of it of things. I mean, I recognize it's a brief window. At this point, the opportunity to see something in theaters is about, what, two months, a month? If you don't make it a priority in the first week, chances are you're not going to go at all. That's sad. I still like to go to the movies. I still think they're always better experienced large, but I'm not going to damn the movie because it is a big screen spectacle. I think that
2: that is makes it cool. I agree, and I think that people, if you see it, should see it there. I just, I like movies to have something more than visual spectacle.
3: I think,
1: again, if you want to just see this as an ode to living through tough times... And I feel like right now, many people feel like they're living through tough times. There can be a lot of power gain from watching people endure and thrive. This is that story, writ large.
3: Again, I it's very un I mean, look, Tarantino came along and said, hey, we're going to have the Americans even kill Hitler. (laughs) Like, we're going to rewrite it that much because Americans want to win. And this is a different kind of story. This is about survival. It's it's something we're not used to in our war movies. Uh, When we don't win, we get all down on ourselves, like Vietnam.
2: Well, Stuart, you said you like to go to the movies. God knows we're going to be going a lot more to the movies. In fact, every week there's something coming out that we're going to be reviewing. A few days ago, Atomic Blonde came out, and Justin, Jacob, and I are going to be reviewing that for the now-playing patrons. You guys got Galaxy Quest just a couple weeks ago while I was at Comic-Con. Atomic Blonde is going to be the next bonus review. And, same week as our Atomic Blonde review, The Dark Tower, going to be coming out one week from today, going to theaters again Doing some Stephen King. I have been hardcore reading Dark Tower books all freaking summer. I think I'm prepared for this movie. I may be over-prepared for this movie. Uh, Better you than me I've I've been trying to keep up with Stephen
1: King But uh, I'm going to let you read all of them Dark Tower books I read one once and wasn't
2: impressed And
1: I don't know what this new movie is Or if anyone will even be going to it But we will
2: I saw some toys for it at Comic Con (laughs) Okay Uh, They made toys for Dune That's all I'll say (laughs) And then we're still going to theaters the week later. Stuart, Marjorie, and I return to Mm. the world of The Conjuring. Speaking of toys. For Annabelle (laughs) creation. I'm hearing good things, surprisingly. Can it get a green
1: arrow? At this point, Conjuring 1, Annabelle, Conjuring 2. Nobody's like none of them on this show. And we get a lot of flack for that because obviously the fans are out there. They make big money. If this one's a good one, I'm going to give it a green. I want it to be a green. I am not a hater. I want to have a good time at the movies,
2: but I'm skeptical. Hey, for uk radio i had to watch ouija 2 and so i decided to watch ouija 1 before that and i went into the theaters to see ouija 2 thinking that that was going to be the worst thing ever and it really improved on the original so if ouija 2 can do it maybe annabelle (laughs) can also so lots of time to go to the theater we're updating our schedule at NowPlayingPodcast.com. Daily with new movies we're going to be reviewing. You can find that out, and you can head to nowpeakingpodcast.com. There's still a few more weeks of Twin Peaks left, and the three of us are reviewing every episode on Fridays. So, Jacob Stewart, thank you for joining me, and until next week, abandon
3: ship.
0: The enemy tanks have stopped. Why? My waste precious tanks when they can pick us off from the air like fish in a barrel. Thank you for listening to this episode of Now Playing, and we hope you've enjoyed the show. Where are we going? Come back to NowPlayingPodcast.com each week for another in-depth movie review. Your weekend sailors, not the bloody navy. And while at the NowPlayingPodcast.com archives, you can find reviews of other films such as the Batman series, Shutter Island, Gangs of New York, The Wolf of Wall Street. Blue Velvet and all of David Lynch's films, 2001 A Space Odyssey, and hundreds more. You can practically see it from here. What? Home. While at Now PlayingPodcast.com, be sure to join our forums, where you can discuss this film with other listeners.
3: It's a nice cup of tea for you down there.
0: You can also follow Now Playing on Facebook and Twitter, where we post announcements of new episodes and where the hosts post movie mini reviews. Links to our social media pages are at nowplayingpodcast.com. There are 400,000 men on this beach. Support from listeners like you help keep Now Playing operating. You can find a link to donate using PayPal at the bottom of our website, nowplayingpodcast.com. We shall go on to the end. We shall never surrender. You can also join our Podbean crowdfunding campaign to help our show grow. Backers of $10 or more will receive exclusive bonus podcast reviews, including Galaxy Quest, Hook, Monster Trucks, The Warriors, Coherence, and Atomic Blonde. A link to our patron page is at nowplayingpodcast.com forward slash donate. The call went out. We have to go to Dunkirk. Now Playing is produced by Arnie Carvalho. I'll be useful, sir. Now playing is edited by Heath and Arnie. They need to send more ships. Now playing credit narration by Brock. They've activated the civilian boats. This podcast has not been prepared, approved, or licensed by any entity that created or produced the film, Dunkirk. Now Playing is an independent movie review podcast with no affiliation with any company involved in the publishing, creation, or distribution of that film or soundtrack. All Dunkirk audio clips and music used are the intellectual property of their respective copyright holders. He's on me. I'm on him. The opinions expressed at Now Playing are those of the individual hosts and may not reflect the opinion of Vinganza Media Incorporated. I'm not going by. Now Playing is a Vinganza Media production, copyright 2017, all rights reserved, and no part of this show may be reproduced, repurposed, or redistributed without the written permission of Vinganza Media Incorporated. I should be at home! Turn it around!
2: and whitehead tom glenn carney jack loden harry styles and and a motorcycle outside my window with kenneth brana cillian murphy mark ryan you're gonna get killed if you say cillian how many times have they
1: corrected you (laughs) i'll
2: be silled if i say killian
1: oh you yank
2: not a lot of feedback on train spotting, too, guys. I was hoping for a little more, but yes, I'll take the full blame. San Diego Comic Con. Wow. Oh, There's something there. That's thunder. It's, yeah. yeah. It's the storm yeah. that's rolling in right now.
1: <laughs> Even when they were doing previews for this movie, it just stood out like a sore thumb. You'd have, you have these rude R rated comedies. Say, say thumb. It'd stick out like a sore thumb.
3: Is that the thunder? Yeah. Yeah. It'd stick
1: out like a sore thumb. You'd have these rude, R-rated...
3: Yeah, thunder.
1: (laughs) Speaking of rude, come on. Thor, stop. To help each other, yeah, you could really get into a very dark place thinking it was the end of the world.
2: I'll admit, part of the reason I like Tom Brokaw, it made Christmas shopping really easy. When you have a book about people your parents and godparents age and it calls them the greatest generation, your Christmas shopping's done. Here, you're the greatest. (laughs) Merry Christmas. And he put out one a year. It was pretty good. In 1940, after the Germans invaded France, thousands, I feel like it should be a newsreel. Beep, 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 (laughs) beep, beep. They set sail and come aboard a downed ship with one survivor, played by Killian Murphy. This soldier violently reacts to going... <laughs> the story gives me a thumbs up because I really went hard on Killian. <laughs> <laughs> when you have th- over 300,000 people rescued, a third of them were French and the French were... Whoa! <laughs> Was that in the room? <laughs> Sounded like it. There was some lightning wow. that crackled my speakers too. I don't know if you heard that, Stuart. Mm-mm.
3: That was loud. Still going. I've yeah, I forgot about that Midwestern <laughs> thunder that just lingers.
1: I heard there was gonna be a
3: storm tonight, but I thought it was like
2: tonight tonight. Like 2 a.m.
3: And the thunder rolls. Okay, Garth.
2: <laughs> I need to find an end line. Mm. Good luck with that. <laughs> Yeah. So Jacob Stewart, thank you for joining me. And until next week, abandon ship. I'm sure someone has said it somewhere. <laughs> <laughs>